And this is a strange Sunday because it's, it's obviously after Christmas and it's not really a new year yet, so it kind of feels like it's Christmas. We still have our Christmas tree up, uh, but Christmas has happened. And I don't know how many of you have begun to look ahead to the new year, but also it's a new decade now. There's all these things appearing on BBC about what happened in the last decade and what's going to happen in the new decade and things, things like that. But I have been pondering a little bit about what I want to see in my own life and, and um, uh, see God do, I suppose, in the next year and in the next 10 years. And I, I gave up a few years ago making New Year's resolutions, mainly because I never kept any, and I just felt guilty all the time. But I, uh, and, and also, after a little while, I decided uh, not to think too much about what I want to achieve personally, although it's a good thing to do that. I just found that, again, that just for me ended up becoming something I was just feeling guilty about all the time. Um, but a question I have found helpful to uh, ponder is, how do I want to be remembered? And um, who am I becoming, really, is I think another way of, of asking the same question. Who am I becoming? And so if I look at who I became over the last year, in the last 10, um, what about that? Am I like, great, that was good. That was a good move. And what about that? Do I regret? And as I look ahead to the, to the next 10, um, who do I want to become and, and how do I want to be uh, remembered by the people that I interact with over the next uh, little while? And there are lots of different ways that people try and sum up uh, how they want to be remembered. Sometimes on gravestones, people put meaningful uh, messages. Martin Luther King, he has written on his gravestone, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Um, Ruth Graham the wife of the famous evangelist Billy Graham has written on her gravestone, absolutely true, inspired by a road sign that she saw once, construction at an end. Thank you for your patience. Uh, the idea that we're always improving during this life and, you know, and then when we get to see the Lord face to face, finally the construction will be over. Thank you for your patience. Um, but I think for me, if, if uh, uh, yeah, I know what I want to have written and I just nicked it straight from a guy in the Bible called Abraham. And uh, God just says two words about Abraham that I, I hope um, will ring true for me one day. Abraham, my friend. My friend. I don't have the headspace for, for many ambitions anymore. Um, but that I would be able to, to, to be his friend. And that at the end of the next 10 years, in the next one year, I'll be able to say, do you know what? I've grown. Uh, our friendship has matured. It's, it's developed. It's grown. And of course, there's a nuance to that because God is a friend of sinners and Jesus comes to be the friend of sinners. So all I need to do to qualify for his friendship is be a sinner, which tick, you know, I managed that very well. But, but there's also a sense in which friendship is something that matures. And although God will always do his part to welcome us into relationship with him and to welcome us into family with him, uh, there are things that we can do. And if some of you are as tired as I suspect you might be at the end of a Christmas, I don't want to give us a long list. Of, oh, my word, now this year we need to be doing X and Y and Z. So I just want to keep it really, really simple. Um, as we look to mature in our friendship with God, one of the things, an aspect, it's not the whole jigsaw, it's just one piece of the jigsaw, but it is an important piece. Uh, one aspect of what that might look like is for us to consider um, our approach to obeying him. And obedience and friendship are not two things that you think naturally those things sit together. But in the Bible and with Jesus, that is how it works. And so Jesus chapter 15 of John verse 14 says this. We'll just have the words on the screen. John chapter 15 verse 14. You didn't, Debbie, you did a brilliant job. So don't feel bad. Right, it says this. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, I've tried this out on some of my friends uh, in real life. And I can tell you that generally they're not my friends when I say that to them. You're my friends if you obey everything I tell you to do. Uh, that's not how friendship works on a human level. How it works on a human level is give and take and compromise. And I submit to you and you submit to me. And what we can do then is when we think about being friends with God, we bring that approach into our friendship with him. So, God, you're my friend. Uh, and so what we'll do is some, today we'll do what I want to do. And uh, tomorrow we can do what you want to do. And we'll, you know, we'll mix it up a little bit, but most of the time it's going to be what I want to do. And, and that's not how friendship works. So what he says is, this is how, if you want to be my friend, if you want to have those words come after your name, uh, Andy, my friend, this is one of the ways that, that you can take steps in, into maturing. And it's going to be mainly me, and it's mainly my grace, and it's, I'll give you everything you need to obey me, but, but let this be a heart approach, at least that you have, obedience to me. You're my friend when you do what I command. You stop becoming simply my child and you mature into always my child, but also my friend when you grow in, in that journey of obedience. And um, as part of growing in this journey, one of the things that can be helpful to do is to look at people who've gone ahead of us. And uh, you'll never find a perfect person unless you're looking at Jesus. But there are people who followed God well and of whom that has been said of them. And one of those is Abraham himself, where God says, Abraham, my friend. And uh, so I'm just going to briefly look at the story of Abraham and pluck out a few lessons for us uh, as we look to a new year that I hope will be a year where we seek to obey him well. And the story of Abraham begins, if you don't know it, in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is a 75-year-old man. His wife, Sarah, is a 65-year-old woman. Uh, they have no children. But Abraham is called Abram at that point, which means father of many. Ironic. And God appears to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and he says this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you see, all the hard work here is being done by God. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will protect you. If someone curses you, I will step in and I will do. All the hard work is always done by God. But Abraham still had a role. He still had a responsibility. It was a partnership. And his end of the deal still had a little bit on it. And it was go and leave everything you know. And then I'll, uh, you know, all the blessing will come. But you've got to go first. And Abraham obeys. He does it. As a 75-year-old man, he thinks, great, fantastic. We've got no kids. Um, it's probably, no, you know, humanly speaking, it's never going to happen for us now, but I'm going to be obedient. And really the promise is that I'm going I'm to give you children, Abraham. People will be singing in Sunday schools around the world. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. It's going to be phenomenal. And so Abraham goes for it. He leaves everything. Massive sacrifice for him. And he steps out into the unknown with his God. And years drag by. And the promise doesn't come true. And so after years and years and years of waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, Abraham takes, takes uh, matters into his own hands. And he sleeps with uh, his, uh, his wife's servant, Hagar. And he has a son by her, Ishmael. But that's not how the promise was going to be fulfilled. And so God reassures Abraham, it's still going to happen, Abe. One night, he, he takes him outside of his tent and he tells him to look up at the stars. And he says, hey, Abraham, look at them. Look how many there are scattered across the velvet sky. Count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. But the years continue to drag by and there's no, there's no fulfillment of this promise. A, a child through Sarah. And then finally, 20 
five years after the promise is given. Isn't that mad? Can you just imagine ordering something on Amazon and it arrives 25 years later? God makes this promise and 25 years after he makes it, when Abraham is 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90 years old, she gets pregnant. Have you ever seen a pregnant 90-year-old? Me neither. So she's pregnant and she's hobbling around on her Zimmer frame with her giant belly. And they're talking about what should we name this kid? And they're probably in hysterics at the fact that she's a 90-year-old you know, pregnant woman. So they decide to call him Isaac, which means laughter. This is just hilarious. And so they have Isaac, the son of promise, finally arrives. And at this point in the story, I would suspect, okay, well, that's the end. You know, it's, it's like, it's, this is like Hollywood. This is like Disney. So uh, Abraham's wealthy and he's successful and he's got his family now and the promise has happened. And so he's going to ride off into the sunset with Sarah. But the Bible is nothing like Hollywood. And so that's not where it ends. What happens next is Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, we read this. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Abraham, hey, Abraham, yes, God, you know your son, yes, God, you know your only son, Isaac, yes, God, you know the one that you love, yes, God, kill him for me, would you? That's what it says, kill him for me, would you? And we're told early the next morning, and you know what, if you're going to do something, get up early and do it. He's decided by that point. Early the next morning, he got up and he he took Isaac and they went off to the place where the sacrifice was going to happen. So he's decided to obey Abraham, my friend. But my question would be, and it has always been when I've read this passage, you know what? The next day he obeys, but what must have been going through his head at that moment? And as he was weighing up, do I do this or not? What would have been going through? If you haven't read the story, by the way, God stops him from sacrificing Isaac at the end. It doesn't happen. God doesn't allow it to happen. But Abraham's intention was to obey God in that moment. And so what must he have been thinking as he sat there? I picture him kind of sitting in his tent at night, looking over at Isaac, who by this stage is a teenager. And just thinking, you know, am I going to go through with this or not? I think God's spoken to me, but, but should I do it or shouldn't I? And for all of us, as we follow God, as we follow Jesus, there are some commands that he'll give us that's pretty easy to follow through. Because like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But for, for, for all of us, and for us as a church community as well, there will come forks in the road. And they're, they're always, they always do. Sometimes several a day in small little ways where we have a decision to make. Do we, we think he's speaking to us or we know he's speaking to us? Do we follow through or do we not? And on this journey into maturing to become like him, um, one of the things that I've noticed is there are often stumbling blocks for us in our willingness to obey God. And I imagine that they're similar to some of the things that surely Abraham, we don't know from the text, but I suspect surely Abraham must have thought. So reason number one, why not to obey God for Abraham? And reason number one, why not to obey God in 2020 is this, because God sounds like he's crazy. 
I'm sorry, you want me to do what? You want me to kill who? Isaac, the son of promise, the one that I've just waited for 25 years for. You want me to kill him? Father Abraham killed his son, killed his son, did Father Abraham, does not sound like a Sunday school appropriate song. So what are you talking about, God? That doesn't make any sense to me. And there will come times and seasons where we find that God speaks to us and he tells us to do something and it doesn't make any rational sense whatsoever to us in that moment. And then we have a choice. Do we obey or don't we? And the real question to ask is not, uh, do I understand this and do I agree with it? Because if we only ever obey our God when we understand and agree, that's not obedience. That's just like, yeah, I think we're, yeah, we can walk in the same direction for a while. Obedience is when I don't understand, and this doesn't, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I think you've said it, so okay. And actually, if we were to look, and we don't have time to go through all of it, but if we were to take a step back and look at the way that God interacts with people time and again through the Bible, what we probably would see, in fact, we definitely would see, is that so often when God moves through individuals, he tells them to do things that to those around them and to them themselves made very little sense at the point of obedience. Noah, hey, Noah, yes, God, build a boat. I live in a massive desert. Why would I want to do that? I'm just telling you, make it huge and then put loads of animals inside of it. Moses, I picture Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. There he is with, you know, the sea in front of him, nowhere to go. Looks behind as an army of Egyptian killers about to massacre the whole lot of them. And Moses probably would have been like, Lord, we need you. Come on, seriously, give us some help. And God says, okay, Moses, I've got a great idea. Take a stick and hold it over the sea. We haven't got time for poo sticks right now, Lord. We need some serious, you know, we need some weapons. We need some military strategy. Don't tell me to hold a stick over the sea. Joshua probably found it fighting battles with God. My word. Joshua found himself in a similar situation. They've gone into the, uh, the promised land at last. They've got the city of Jericho ahead of them. It's got these massive walls. This is a key battle because if they lose this, Israel fall apart. And Joshua is probably looking at the walls saying, how are we going to defeat these walls? How, what should we do? Should we get some battering rams? Should we get some catapults? And the Lord says, I've got a great idea. Have you got any trumpets, Joshua? Have you got any worship leaders? What we're going to do is we're going to walk around the walls and we're going to sing some songs to me. Really, Lord, you don't think a tank or two would go amiss? No, no, no. We're just going to walk around the walls and we're going to sing some songs. Gideon. Have you read the story of Gideon? He has to defeat an army of 300,000 people and his army has got 30,000 people in it. Just so he's outnumbered 10 to what? As I imagine him saying to Lord, Lord, the odds of us winning are very, very small. What do you think we should do? And the Lord says to Gideon, I've got an idea. Why don't you send away everyone in your army who is afraid? Really, Lord? I think that's going to be virtually the whole army. Yes, I think so too. And so loads of his army leave. Eventually they whittle him down to just having 300 men against 300,000. And so the Lord has lengthened the odds to 1,000 to 1. And then he says, charge Gideon. You know, off you go. The prophets, don't be a prophet in the Old Testament if you can help it. I picture Isaiah sort of strutting around. Nobody respects me, Lord. Nobody appreciates the words of your prophet. Isaiah chapter 20, the Lord says to Isaiah, I've got a great idea, Isaiah. Why don't you take off all your clothes? 
Really, Lord? I think people would respect me less if I took my clothes off. No, take them all off. And then he says, and keep them off for three years. He actually has to do that. You can check, check me on it. Um, Hosea. Hosea's probably thinking at one point, you know what? I'd love to get married. I've seen a lovely girl at church. I think she's great. I'd love to propose to her one day. And the Lord interrupts him and says, oh, hold on there, Hosea. I've already picked a bride out for you. She's a local prostitute by the name of Goma. Uh, you should marry her. And Hosea may well have said to him, I don't think that's a very good idea at all. And the Lord says, well, tough. Go and marry her. And I'll tell you at this point, she's definitely going to have an affair. And you're going to have your heart ripped out and stamped on. Have a nice honeymoon, Hosea. Uh, Ezekiel. At one point, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can you lie down on your left side? So Ezekiel obeys, being a good prophet, lies down on his left side. And the Lord says to him, now stay there for 390 days. And we could go on. I mean, there's a long list. And it wasn't that God was just telling these people to do stuff for the sake of it. It wasn't that 390 days after that, God was like, oh my word, Ezekiel, I can't believe you did that. I was just, I was just messing with you. Um, there was a point to it. But the point was they didn't know that at the time. So, so uh, you know, Noah had never seen a desert flood. Moses had never seen a sea part. Uh, Joshua had never seen worship bring walls down. Gideon had never seen 300,000 defeated by just 300. They didn't know it at the time, but God was doing something new. And for us, as we seek to follow him as his people now in 2020, God is doing new things today. And the only way we'll walk into them together as Jesus' people is when we're willing to say, this does not make sense to us. I do not compute. In fact, it makes the opposite of sense. But the question I'm asking is not whether I understand it. The question I'm asking is whether you're saying it. And if you are saying it, then I will obey you. And sometimes that, that's, uh, that's just little things where you feel a little nudge on a train to, to pray for a person next to you and you think, oh man, that's going to be so embarrassing. Or you, you, you feel a, a prompt at the office to, to really make a beeline for a certain colleague and just get to know them and get beside them. Or it may be in other ways. Sometimes it's the meat and potatoes of reading the Bible and you see stuff in there and you think, this, this, is, this is crazy. You know, we don't even have to go to the Old Testament and some of the, the, the sort of more extreme bits of that. You can just pick up the New Testament and have a read of Jesus' Jesus's teaching. There's stuff in there that doesn't make sense. Have you tried loving your enemies before? Loving your enemies is a great thing to believe until you have an enemy. And then it becomes very stupid as an approach to how you treat them, or it feels like it does. It feels like it does. Forgiving people. Forgiveness is great. What a lovely thing. Let's all forgive people. Let's forgive one another. And that's really good until you have something to forgive. And then it's one of the hardest deaths you'll ever have to die to forgive another person who you think doesn't deserve it. I know that because I've been there. So, so it sounds crazy, but because you say so, okay. Reason number two why not to obey God in 2020. Reason number two why uh, Abraham may well have opted out of what God had asked him to do in this moment. Because this is really going to hurt someone that I love. Isaac. This is going to hurt someone that I love. And um, one of the things that I think every single one of us, and I'll put myself at the top of this list, can do at times, is we make things that are good ultimate. And Jesus is so kind to us in his teaching. He's so gentle. But one of the things that he's really firm about is he says that our relationship with him, our personal relationship with him, comes 
before every other relationship we'll ever have. It's the foundation of life. It's the rock to build upon. It's the sure and solid foundation um, from which everything else can thrive. It's the root system of the tree that feeds life into everything else. But what happens so often is we forget that and our attention drifts. And sometimes even things in our lives that are good take up a position of prominence that they don't actually, that doesn't belong to them. And some of Jesus' teaching on it is really strong. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, can we get those words up on the screen? Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus says something here that in first reading, it just feels like a bit of a shock. But actually, when you start to dig into it, there's a real goodness in it, but it doesn't feel like it is. Can we find that? Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Can we go to the next verse? No. Okay. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I don't know if you're reading the same verses I'm reading, but when he says, uh, whoever does not love their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, I feel pretty, pretty like, oh, hang on a second. And uh, the same of mother and father. And in that culture where the, like, the family unit was even more tightly knit than it is today, it was a strong group society is what they call it, that was radical teaching. Really, really, it would have seemed to people extreme teaching that Jesus was saying. And when we hear that, it can, our instant response can often be to feel guilty, to feel like we don't live up to that. Because, who, you know, I don't know how many people would feel like they lived up to that. But there's a goodness in it that if you dig down, you find, and it's this, that when we make him number one, and when we put him before our partners and our friends and our children and our parents, then what happens is we become better husbands and wives. We become better mothers and fathers. We become better friends or aunties or uncles or whatever it is. We become better sons and better daughters. Because so long as he isn't the foundation, then generally some of us manage to live for other people and for the sake of other people. But most of us, certainly me, Live for me. And I've noticed that if Jesus is number one in my life, I'm more likely to submit to others. I'm more likely to forgive them. I'm more likely to be kind to them. But here's a big challenge with this one. This is probably where the rubber hits the road, certainly for me, and I imagine I'm not the only one. Lots of us, what, what we can be is, is people pleasers. Anyone else have that problem? Um, and we can do everything we can in life not to disappoint the people around us. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just an observation of how we live. So, so we, can, we can, you know, I don't want to disappoint my boss. So I'll go to the extra, extra mile. I don't want to disappoint my mates. You know what, we've, been, we've known each other since we were 15. I really don't want to disappoint them by, by making a decision they won't understand or like. I don't want to disappoint my kids um, by saying this is how we're going to live as a family. I don't want to disappoint my boyfriend or my girlfriend by saying actually we're not going to do that. We're going to do this instead. I don't want to disappoint them. And there's a massive pressure that surrounds us in life as we, as we seek to live for Jesus because there, there's this pressure not to disappoint anybody else. And I understand that pressure. Um, I really do. But one of the things that's challenged me in, in recent years has been seeing that Jesus disappointed a lot of people. He really did. 
I mean, he disappointed the religious leaders. He disappointed his own family. They didn't understand some of the decisions that he was making. He disappointed his brothers and his sisters. He disappointed his own disciples. He disappointed a lot of people. Do you know the one person he never disappointed? His father. Because if it was a choice for him between disappointing others and disappointing his father in heaven, he always chose to let the people down and never his father. Isn't that challenging? I don't feel like I could say that's how I'm living my life. And so one of the things I'm pondering as I, as I look to this next year is, how can I make sure that pleasing you is the number one thing above everything else? And what I'm expecting to happen, let me, let me, let me make it clear as I do that, is not that suddenly all these cracks and dividing lines are going are to suddenly appear in my relationships and it's like going to be like, stuffed a lot of you, I'm off following Jesus. I'm not anticipating that at all. I'm anticipating that I will become a better father and I'll become a better husband, and I'll become a better friend when obedience to him is my number one. Reason number three, and the final reason, why not to obey God? As Abraham sat in his tent that night, looked at his son Isaac, I imagine one of the things that went through his head in that moment is, all I can see is a cost. I can't see any benefits for me in this whatsoever. And you see, in Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, get yourself, leave everything you know, and get to the place that I'm going to show you, there was a huge cost. Abraham had to leave everything he knew. But there was also a massive blessing, which is, I'm going to make you Father Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons. You're going to get this tremendous blessing that goes with the sacrifice. But then you get to Genesis 22, and the same word in the Hebrew is used, and it only occurs twice in the whole Old Testament, this particular word, get yourself. And that's a little clue that these passages are linked for us. And Abraham says, get yourself to the, uh, God says to Abraham, get yourself to the region of Moriah and kill Isaac. And this time, there's no massive, and I will bless you, and I'll make you a great nation. There's none of that. There's just do it. Kill the promise. And I often feel like that's how God works with us um, when he's maturing us as his friends and as his people. So when we first come to know him, we're like children that have to be, not bribed, I don't want to put it like that, but if you've got kids, it's like, okay, please do what I'm telling you to, and I'll buy you a toy and give you all the chocolate in the world. And then as they get older, you think, if I'm still having to promise my, my 30-year-old son chocolate in order to get him to put his shoes on, we've got a real parenting problem. Um, and so God, often when we first come to know him, the blessings are so obvious. It's like, you give up your tiny little life, and you get abundant life. You give up eternal life. You get forgiveness for everything you get me as a father. You get all of these things. And then there come moments and, and points on the journey where it's just, I'm just asking you to do it. And I know it's going to cost you. Up to you. Over to you. Will you, will you give up your time? Will you uh, give up your, your career? Will you give up your finances? Will you give up this, this dream that you've had since you were a child? Will you give up this idea of what success looks like in order to follow me well, in order to, to live for me wholeheartedly? Will you do that for me? All you'll see is the cost. And for me, when I see the cost, immediately what my mind goes to is, no, no thank you very much. That's too expensive. I don't have the kind of time to give that up. I don't have the kind of money to give that away. I haven't got the the patience to be able to do that. I'm not built like that. All the excuses come rolling in like a giant tidal wave. This is why I'm not going to pay that cost. And I think that's probably human nature. But one of the things that helps me is to remember what he's already given for me. Before he asked me to give up anything for him, he gave up everything 
for me. And particularly at Christmas, when you think that what it cost him to come, all he could see is the cost. My son's going, and I know what's going to happen when he, when he lands there in that stable. I know what the future is going to be, but I'm going to, I'm going to give this anyway. And when I understand that everything I have for him is just pure gift anyway, every breath I take is pure gift anyway, that doesn't mean it all becomes easy because it doesn't. There's always that wrestle inside of us, but it makes it easier. And the people that I love and the people that I look up to, and I'm sure you're the same, as, as, as a Christian, they're not the people that have these massive long resumes and lists of achievements. Uh, they're the people that I meet who are often elderly, um, and uh, you know they're in the 70s, 80s, 90s even, some of them. And they've got this godliness about them that you can smell. Sometimes they have other smells about them as well. But there's a godliness to them. I love it. And I just look at some of them, and there's like a, there's like a joy in them. Even though their, their physical bodies are kind of given up, and you know they can't do everything they used to be able to do. They're not some big shot in business like they maybe were one time, or not running around helping everybody else out like maybe they did one day, because they haven't got the energy for it anymore. They can't make it uh, happen anymore. But there's just, there's, a, there's, a, there's the character of Christ. I can't put it any other way. They just have Jesus in them. And I've thought, man, I want to be like you. When I'm old, if I could have an ambition, it would be not what could I do, but who could I become? And I would love to become someone like you. And here's, here's, the, here's the rub of it. That can happen. It can happen for me, and it can happen for you. And the way it's going to happen is he's going to help us by putting his spirit in us. And because of his mercy and because of his grace, and not because of our determination and willpower. It's going to happen because of him. And at the same time, it's going to happen because we as a people are going to say yes to him. It sounds crazy to me. <laughs> Some people, I really care about their opinions and they're not going to understand this. All I can see at this current point from where I'm standing at the start of this year is a cost to my doing that. But yes, anyway. And we do that not with some grand, huge gesture, but a day-by-day-by-day attitude towards him. And what we find is our friendship with him, our closeness to him, our intimacy, it grows.